Good morning, fellowship. Would you stand with us as we sing this familiar hymn together? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. Since the earliest days of Fellowship's existence, we have made our position on abortion very clear. We have always believed that taking the life of an unborn child was and is wrong. An innocent baby's right to live should not be based on another's right to choose. We have strongly supported organizations who provide services and options for young women facing unplanned pregnancies. We have also preached from our pulpits at every opportunity the sanctity of human life from conception to death. Our position is not political, but biblical and ethical. 
We are not at war with those who disagree with us, but want to be a candle in the darkness. Nor do we condemn those who have experienced an abortion in the past. Fellowship's desire is that our congregations be places of refuge, of healing, and hope. The elders of Fellowship Bible Church feel that now is the time to speak into this situation, to reaffirm our position. When the Supreme Court ruling was made public, tempers on both sides of the debate were flaring. And we didn't want to bring such divisiveness into our services or within our church walls. Our agenda is not driven by the media or by the world but by opportunities to fulfill our vision and mission and reflect the love of Christ to all. Our position is based on the scriptures that life is sacred and only God has the right to choose when life begins and ends. I'm grateful to God that abortion will no longer be legal in many states, but it will still be legal in others. The debate will rage on. But as I am thankful for the Supreme Court's decision, my heart is heavy for the 60 million plus babies who were aborted since 1973, and that there is such a great divide in our country over this issue. Psalm 139 tells us that God forms us in our mother's womb, and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I pray that in our country and world, mothers in the future will make the choice to let those innocent babies who are God's ultimate creation live. Let them live. Our mission here at Loving Choices is we're here to offer hope to girls that find themselves in crisis pregnancies. These girls come in here and they're hopeless and they don't know where to turn and we're, we're giving them hope. And that's probably the favorite, my favorite part is I love helping someone in crisis find hope in Jesus and find hope in um, their situation. We've had girls as young as 12 here and as old as 51 here. So we will service all ages. And it doesn't even have to be a crisis as in they're considering having an abortion. It can be financial crisis. It can be, I don't have insurance. I just don't know what to, where to turn. I'm new in the area. We just wanna be there to connect them with what they need. Loving Choices is offering hope empowering families and bringing life. We're here no matter where their circumstances are, what brought them here. Uh, we want to love them where they're at. And that's the one thing that I train all my volunteers. You have to love them where they're at. Whatever situation they're in, you've got to love them there. And that's where we start. We hope to bring them on the other side to a place of hope and, and being able to flourish in what they're doing. But when they come in, we're going to meet them wherever they're at. No judgment here. Over the last few weeks, we've seen much um, emotion and divisiveness across our nation in regards to this issue. Hear from Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before they came to be. As a church, when we speak into the issue of abortion, we have to look at it from two fronts. 
One is we have fidelity to the scriptures where we defend and serve the life of the unborn. We believe that life begins in the womb and that all children are created in the image of God. At the same time, we believe that all people are created in the image of God. So we serve them from the womb to the tomb, from uh, being in their mother's womb all the days of their life. And that includes expectant mothers and women and expectant fathers. And so we as a church have an opportunity to show compassion and mercy and love and generosity. So an opportunity is before us like never before to serve ministries like Loving Choices Pregnancy Center or to serve in adoption. So what an opportunity we have to step into showing what true pro-life looks like as a church. Hey, if you're here today, I know that this stirs a lot of emotions, maybe from your past or maybe from things you're processing. I just want you to know we're here to visit with you. In fact, I'll be out in the foyer if you'd like to talk to me or maybe if you'd like prayer, we'll have um, people in our prayer room to pray with you. We just love to process with you. We know it's a sensitive issue. Uh, hey, I wanna welcome you because you're created in the image of God and are worthy of love and service. And we wanna welcome you to our church. And if you'd love to find out more about how to plug into our church, just come out to the central booth. We'll take care of you and help you connect your children or your students or find a place for you or for you and your spouse to be known here at Fellowship. Hey, I also wanna welcome our newest staff member, this is Jason McMahon, and Jason comes to serve as our missions pastor, our global outreach pastor. Will you welcome Jason? Thank you, guys. Many of you may know Jason, and he and his family, y'all just got home from Mali, Africa, just six weeks ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a couple months ago. Um, and as you see these images, this is as I was beginning my last week of five years of service in Mali, Africa. Um, what, what a thrill it was and one of the greatest um, things to experience Jesus in this way, to be a goer and to see uh, lives changed for, for Christ. And so as you look at these pictures behind me here, um, I'm pretty easy to pick out, I think. I'm the guy squatting down over there. Uh, and then I've got my other buddy, Shaka, Pastor Shaka, is squatting down with me and he's also a believer. But the more interesting story is this guy in this custom-made $34 baptism tank here, Musa. And so Musa is a guy that came to Christ and gets baptized on this day with 40 other inmates in a prison ministry that Shaka and I were doing. And so what makes Musa's story stand out amongst the 40 and makes it so amazing is here at Fellowship, we release spiritual leaders, right? I was a release spiritual leader. You can be a release spiritual leader if you're not. But this man next to me uh, in the other picture standing up is Kamara. And Kamara was also a prisoner. And a year before that, Kamara came to Jesus. He did this uh, Creation to Christ Bible study. And then one of the things that you're supposed to do in that is retell the stories that you know. Well, guess who Kamara told him to? Musa. And so Kamara has led Musa to Jesus Christ, and now he's gonna be baptized on this day here and to get to tell a released uh, spiritual leader inside of a prison in Mali, Africa. What a thrill that's been to do that. And yeah. 
So the McMahans have come home from the field. This is a picture of their family. They've moved back to Northwest Arkansas. Many of you know Jason and Melissa because they've been at fellowship so long. Jason coached basketball at Bentonville High School. All you Harbor and Rogers people don't boo and hiss. Um, but, uh, and we're glad to have you on our staff. Yeah, I'm so excited to be on the staff. I think uh, one of the unique things is when I was coaching basketball at Bentonville, we started attending church here. Uh, and many of you do that. But if you do discover class, I remember this guy next to me here, Sam saying, you can't just go to church here. You have to get involved. You're supposed to be in a community group. So we did that. We took that next step. We got into a community group. Then we became community group leaders. And we know where this road goes, right? Then you become student ministry leaders, right? And then we had missionaries to our community group. Then we started doing outreach with uh, Indians in Bentonville. And uh, the next step becomes, should we pray for people to go? Should we help send people to go? And we did that next step. We took the next right step each time. And then we uh, got an opportunity to go on a short-term trip to Mali, Africa. And um, at that time, we just used what we were good at, which was the only skill we had, which was coaching high school kids for basketball. And they said, would you please move here to teach us to be good at basketball? And then you know what happens next. God puts it on your heart that these people don't know the authentic Jesus Christ and that we have the opportunity to go and tell that to them. And so me and my family and another uh, family went over there and we got to do that. And uh, we are uh, very excited now to be here with you as the global outreach pastor and walk through uh, life with you and to help you realize that the nations are here. They're in our community and that we can do global outreach and never leave Rogers, never leave Springdale. And we can do that. You can invite someone to your community group if you want to do that. But I think my story will resonate with you because I was birthed out of every chair here right, with build classes and you name it. We've done it all uh, at this church and, and including going. And I think the most fascinating part about that is now we've got to return and we get to join on the staff uh, with the, the wonderful group that we have here and now lead out with you guys and connect with you and help you to realize that the nations are here, that you can be someone who goes also to the nations. Yeah, Jason's job is going to be to keep the world before our very eyes. And if you'd love to hear more of his story, uh, Mickey's Ride Home podcast features the McMahon story. Actually, two episodes. Yeah, so it's I'm a, a, much it's a double feature, and so you can hear the McMahon story, or if you just want to meet Jason, uh, he'll be out in the foyer at one of the booths. He'd love to tell you more about the global outreach ministry. And so, hey, can we pray for him and his family as they're making this culture shift right now and coming home? Join me in prayer. Well, Lord, thanks for our brother, Jason. Thanks for his willingness to move his family across the world to share the message of Jesus, and now his willingness to mobilize us to do the same to welcome those who move here and to go to those who don't. And Lord, I pray for the McMahon family, for all the adjustments, for his kids re-entering school and for finding a home and for um, getting all their, their life set back up. I pray for grace and mercy upon them. And I pray that you would use him to push us out of our comfort zone, to have a heart for the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
that forgiveness together. We're going to have a time of prayer where Carrie and Van lead us. And I want you to enter into this moment, not to just hear the words prayed over you, but to spend some time with the Lord in prayer, to confess the sin that you're struggling with, and to experience His mercy and His forgiveness. And so, together we pray. Father, forgive me. I'm a sinner in desperate need of your grace. Forgive me for the sins I name as less than sinful. Forgive me for hating the sin in others more than my own sin. Forgive me for every moment when I love what you name as evil. Forgive me for loving my pleasure more than I love you. Forgive me for those times when I complain to you more than I praise you. Forgive me for those times when my talk is not shaped by a love for you and others. Forgive me those moments when I fail to give others the grace that you have given me. Forgive me for those times I want to control rather than resting in your control. Forgive me for when I doubt your wisdom, mercy, and love. Forgive me for every moment when I am angry because I did not get my own way. Forgive me for those times when I fail to witness to your rescuing grace. Forgive me for often loving earthly treasures more than the spiritual treasures that you have lavished on me. Forgive me for those many moments when I failed to love my spouse as you love your church. Forgive me for those times when I've used my gifts for my glory and not yours. Forgive me when my fantasies 
are outside your boundaries. Forgive me when I have responded to the weaknesses in others with irritation and not with grace. Forgive me when I am comfortable with a dichotomy between what I profess and how I live. Forgive me when I allow the distractions of earth to keep me from seeking things above. Forgive me when I am not a good steward of my time and my energy and my resources. Forgive me for every time I battle for my way instead of joyfully submitting to your way. Forgive me for every moment I fail to seek and celebrate your generous forgiveness. Forgive me for failing to quest to be holy as you are holy. Forgive me for every instance where my heart wanders from your righteous path. Oh, forgive me for words unsaid that should have been said and for words said that should never have been said. Forgive me for feeling entitled to be loved while at that same time failing to love. Forgive me for carrying a burden of guilt because I have doubted your forgiveness. Forgive me for those times when I have failed to love justice, mercy, and humility. So I bow before your holiness, not because of my righteousness, but because of the perfect righteousness of the Son knowing that my penalty has been paid, I come to you for what only you can offer. Please work to keep my heart tender and may my mouth always be willing to confess my need for your forgiveness. You stand with us and let's declare our dependence on our Savior together. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart, you're the 
God, we pray as you taught us how to pray. Lord, forgive us of our transgressions as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, we ask for our daily bread today. God, may we worship you for who you are. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, hey, this morning I want to talk a little bit about character, consistency, and culture. And in particular, I want to talk about Jesus' character, his consistency, and his culture. And I think it's a character of forgiveness, which he's consistent to offer to us. And within the kingdom of heaven, Jesus propagates, he offers, he welcomes us into a culture of forgiveness. And the way that we're going to look at these three ideas is through the story of the woman caught in adultery. 
And I'll just say it outright. This isn't a story about a woman. It's a story about Jesus. This isn't a story about adultery. It's a story about forgiveness. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead, open up John 8. If you don't have them, we'll show you on the screen. But hey, for those of you who are opening up the word of God right now and looking at it, you might in your Bible see a little footnote, maybe some brackets or an asterisk that leads you to an end note. And those footnotes talk about manuscripts and they talk about whether or not this story should be found in this location in John or elsewhere in Luke. And honestly, sometimes people read those footnotes and they get nervous. They get scared and they go, oh, oh no, can I trust this story? Can I trust my Bible? Can I trust what I have in front of me? And let me just tell you, you absolutely can trust the scriptures that you have in front of you. If you wanna learn more about the canonization process, that is how we got the Bible, then check out our training center. We've got some courses that talk about bibliology and they can help you answer some of the questions you may have. But let me just tell you, it is a really good thing that our Bible didn't just fall from heaven in the King James version right in front of us. And it is a really good thing that some guy didn't find some seer stones and put them in a hat and look in that hat all by himself. I know this sounds specific, but for those of you who are following me, it's a good thing that accountability and the spirit and community went into gathering the scriptures that we have. Hey, if that's too much, if you're going, ah, I, I, don't, I don't really care about that, you can trust this story because it lines up with Jesus's character, his consistency, and his culture. Hey, in this story, what's gonna happen? The scribes and the Pharisees, they find a woman caught in adultery. They bring her to Jesus. And they say to Jesus, this woman ought to be stoned. She has committed a capital crime. And in order to catch Jesus, to bring a charge against him, they look at the Savior and they say, what do you have to say? Jesus then gives this incredible response that we all know. He says, let him who's without sin be the first to throw the stone. The Pharisees and the scribes, they leave one by one. The crowd that had gathered as well drops their stones. Everybody's gone, and it's just Jesus and the woman. And there's this conversation that takes place. And to the woman, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You can see already, this is a story of vindication, not of condemnation. This is a story of grace, but it does involve some punishment. And I think we'll see that. Let's jump right in. In the very beginning, it says that Jesus, he went to the Mount of Olives and then early in the morning, he's in the temple and he begins to teach. The people have gathered there to listen to him. And as he is teaching them, the Pharisees have caught a woman in adultery and they bring this woman to Jesus. And placing this woman in the midst, they look at Jesus and they say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you have to say? Right from the beginning, we can see what's going on. Jesus is present. People are listening. Pharisees and the scribes bust into the scene. They bring this woman and they say, she's been caught in the act of adultery. We want to stone her. And in an attempt to catch Jesus, to bring a charge against him, they say, what do you have to say? We can see what the, the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. They're making an appeal. In my humble opinion, I think they wanted Jesus to stone this woman. Not because they were against the woman just as much as they were against Jesus. They were trying to catch him, to bring a charge against him. And so in order to get Jesus to do what they want, they begin to appeal to all these different authorities and reasons. They list Moses and the law. They list commandments. 
It's really similar to what my children do. And I'm not comparing my children to the Pharisees and the scribes, but my kids, it's not uncommon for them to come up to me and go, dad, dad, you know, mom said that because we were good for the babysitter the other night and it's Friday night and summer and tomorrow's Saturday and the Jayhawks won the national championship and you love the Jayhawks that tonight we could have ice cream. And they begin to appeal to all of these things on why I should actually let them do what they want me to do. And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. They're making an appeal to these authorities as if Jesus doesn't know the law or the commandments or who Moses is. But when you really look at it, the appeal that they make is an appeal to a false justice. They're after guilt, not justice, and there is a big difference. You see, the the Pharisees and the scribes say the law commanded us, and that's just not the case. The law did command that someone caught in a capital crime would be put to death, but that wasn't the role of the Pharisees and the scribes as they claim it here. They also say that they're commanded to stone such women. And that's just not what the law states. God's not sexist. This isn't a law against women. Actually, this is a law of righteousness and the two caught in the act of adultery are to be punished. And if this woman really was caught in the act of adultery, as they say, then that dude had to be there somewhere. But I don't see him in this story because the Pharisees and the scribes, they're not after justice, they're looking for guilt. And in order to find guilt, they look at Jesus after making their appeal to this false justice and they say, what do you have to say? What do you have to say about this Jesus? John tells us they do this, that they might have a charge to bring against him. And here are my thoughts. I think the Pharisees and the scribes are gonna find two ways to bring guilt upon Jesus, one with the Jews and one with the Romans. If they go to Jesus and say, hey, we made our appeal, you need to stone this woman. And Jesus says, nope, there is no punishment here today. If Jesus says that, then they've got a charge to bring against him with the Jews because they can say, this man claims to be the Messiah and yet he opposes the very clear and direct law of God. On the other hand, if they make their appeal and Jesus says, you're right, and he picks up a stone and he begins to stone this woman, then the Pharisees and the scribes can go to the Romans because it was unlawful for a Jew to initiate an execution without Roman authority. They could go to the Roman officials and say, there's this man murdering people in the streets. You gotta take care of him. They are bent on guilt and they're gonna find it one way or another. After asking Jesus the question, trying to trap him, John says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. It's it's an interesting thing to do. I've never had a mob in front of me, but I can't imagine if a mob was in front of me, I would just start writing on the ground, but it's what Jesus does. And we're not sure what Jesus is writing. There's some speculation, there's some tradition. Some people think that Jesus began to write with his finger the names of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they link that to Jeremiah 17, which talks about God writing the names of the people who have forsaken him into the dust. Some people think it's a demonstration of an act of God, just as God wrote the law, now Jesus is rewriting the fulfillment of the law. But whatever it is, John doesn't think it's too important for us to know. What John wants us to know is the physical posture of Jesus. And two times in this story, Jesus is going to bend over and move towards the ground. We'll take a look at it in a little bit. After Jesus bends over, he moves towards the ground, the people continue to question him. Jesus is silent before them, and so they begin to say, well, what do you have to say? 
We asked you a question, what should we do with this woman? And Jesus rises to his feet. He looks at them and in this stunner statement says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And immediately after he gives those words, what does he do? He then begins to bend over and right in the ground. Now our 21st century minds, when we hear these words of Jesus, we love it because we're like, sweet, the woman goes free, Andy won the argument, Pharisees and scribes, they got nothing to say. But we actually don't know the context of what is happening here. Our minds don't understand the Levitical law that the Jews were living under. We don't understand the culture and the context. Because when we really look at it, Jesus isn't saying, no one's gonna stone this woman. That's not what he says. The law is really clear that someone who commits adultery is guilty of a capital crime. You can find it in Leviticus. And that capital crime is due death. There's no getting around it. This woman knew she was guilty. The Pharisees and the scribes knew she was guilty. The people knew she was guilty. Jesus knew she was guilty. And yet just as clear as the law is on who is guilty, it's clear on who should throw the first stone. You see, at this time, you couldn't just accuse anybody of anything, pick up a rock and start chucking it at them. There was actually some law and some order. Deuteronomy lays that out. In fact, there had to be two witnesses to a capital crime, two or three. And those two or three witnesses had to go to a religious court. They had to testify what they saw. And if what they saw was found to be false, if their testimony was false, they were lying, they would be put to death. And on the other hand, if what their testimony, uh, if it was found to be true, then Deuteronomy 17 says that they are the ones who have to throw the first stones. There's accountability to what you say, and there's responsibility for what you bring upon someone. And it's in light of guilt and responsibility that Jesus says his words, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone among you. Jesus is changing this idea not of guilt, but who is responsible to punish sin. Jesus does not say no one is going to stone this woman. In fact, it's the opposite. Jesus doesn't say nobody here is capable of punishing this woman's sin. Jesus says, I'm capable of punishing this woman's sin because he's the sinless one. Jesus to the crowd stands up and says, it's my right, it's my responsibility, it's my place as God and as sinless to punish sin. And right after he says this to the scribes and to the Pharisees, what does he do? He bent over and he begins to write in the ground. And when the people begin to hear this, they don't know what to do. They're uncertain and they begin to leave one by one, starting with the oldest. It's just Jesus and the woman now. And the woman is standing in the presence of Christ. Jesus stands up, he looks at her and they begin to have a conversation. He says, where are they gone? Where are the people who have condemned you? Are they not here? And the woman says, no one, no one condemns me, Lord. Jesus says, neither do I go and from now on sin no more. This is the section where the crowd departs, they leave. And I can't tell you if it's because they just went, shoot, we're not gonna trap Jesus today. And they realize that he kind of won the argument and so they leave, or maybe it's a, a conviction that the people actually heard the words of Jesus and realized I am a false witness seeking a false justice. And they walked away in conviction. Whatever it is, it turns out to be Jesus and this woman standing there. And Jesus stands up as it's just he and her. 
And he looks her in the eyes and he asks her a question. He says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And I think sometimes when we read these rhetorical questions by Jesus, we sometimes put some cynicism in his tone. If you're like me, maybe you're sarcastic. And so you put some sarcasm on the way that he's asking this question. But I don't think that's the tone that Jesus has. I don't think Jesus's questions are sarcastic in nature. I think they're exhortative by far more than anything else. Jesus looks at this woman and he goes, where are they? Ma'am, where are the people who have tried to condemn you? Ma'am, where are the people who brought charges against you because there's no room for them in my presence? Where are the people who thought that they could bring guilt here because there's no guilt in the presence of the Savior? Ma'am, where are the people who thought they caught you because you're not caught in my presence? No, you're bought in my presence. I'm the one who owns you. You're my responsibility. You're my child. I have you. Jesus asks, where are your condemners? And the woman gets to look at him and she says, no one, Lord, condemns me. They're not here. To that, Jesus responds and he says, well, neither do I. And the really cool thing is the answer that Jesus gives the woman, neither do I condemn you, it also answers the question that the scribes and the Pharisees ask. Jesus, what do you have to say? And he says, I don't condemn her. His words are packed with kindness. His words are packed with mercy. His words are packed with forgiveness. His words are packed with grace. As he says, neither do I condemn you. And the reason his words are packed with grace is because they're backed by justice. Because you got to understand this. You cannot have grace unless there's justice. Those are two inseparable ideas. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. In order to have grace, there's got to be a just measurement. There's got to be a standard. And Jesus can offer words of grace to this woman because he knows a just standard will be upheld. He can offer forgiveness for her sins because he knows punishment for her sins is coming. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, it's like he's saying, I don't condemn you because I'll be condemned for you. And that's what the gospel is. That's what we as followers of Jesus believe. Hopefully that's why you are actually here. Because you believe that Jesus is the one who lived the life that we couldn't, died the death that we deserve, rose to new life that we might actually take part in that reward. The sinless one is the one who's punished in this story so that the sinful ones are absolved. It's exactly what 2 Corinthians says when it says, he who knew no sin was made sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the beauty of the Christian faith that the savior who can judge actually chooses to forgive because he was judged. What does this tell us about Jesus when we look at this story? It tells us that he's just to condemn and yet he is gracious to forgive. Jesus is the righteous one to judge and yet the kind one to forgive. And we could, let's just use this story because we're in it. Let's use it as a case study. Why is Jesus just to condemn? He's the author of the law. He could have condemned this woman had he wanted to because he wrote the law. It's good for him to uphold the law. As the author of the law and the fulfillment of the law, it's okay for him to interpret the law. And here he interprets it saying, no, not witnesses, the sinless throw the first stone. He's clearly the sinless one. It would have been his right and his place to throw that stone. He's also the righteous God. It would be good for the righteous God to uphold the law of righteousness. He's fully God. 
He would have been aware of her adultery. As aware, he would have qualified as a witness as he wanted to. He has every reason in the world to condemn the sin in this woman. And yet because of his character, he chooses to forgive her. In his words, neither do I condemn you, and in his actions, by choosing not to stone her. Jesus, the righteous God to punish sins, is just to forgive sins because he was punished for our sins. That's who he is. And so what do we do with this? This idea that we learn about Jesus, that he's the just judge and the gracious Lord. How do we actually then take that and how does it impact our relationship with him? Well, run through the story with me again. And let's synthesize it. Let's put ourselves into this story a little bit. And I'll be honest, if there's anybody you want to be in this story, it is the woman. Because she's the one thrown at the feet of Jesus. And so look at this. It starts off, a woman is caught, she is brought, and she is placed at the feet of Jesus. She's guilty. She's been caught in adultery. And if it's true, she was caught in the actual act of adultery. I would imagine she's naked. And seeing that the Pharisees and the scribes weren't too worried about justice, I can't imagine they were too worried about this woman. I can't imagine they were trying to carry her to Jesus in a kind manner, and I don't imagine they clothed her. She's brought exposed and placed in the midst of Jesus with a crowd all around her. Not just exposed, but also guilty. She knows what's going on. She knows the law. She knows what is coming. She is going to die. And she's put in the midst of this crowd with the scribes and the Pharisees in Christ. And they call out to Jesus saying, she was caught. The law says we should stone her. What do you have to say? And can you imagine the fear? Just for a second, put yourself there. This woman is being drugged through the streets to find Jesus. She's being insulted on her way there. She's thrown before the Lord. And people are saying, she's due death. We're ready to go. What do you think we should do? And as she looks at Jesus, her eyes half closed in fear. She's, she's cowering, knowing that the rocks are coming. She sees that man begin to bend over. This is it. She knows that Jesus, the one who claims to be the Messiah, is bending down to pick up a rock. She can feel it. All of a sudden, her eyes are completely shut, and she's standing there waiting for it to happen. But instead of hearing the thud of a rock on her skull, she hears the fingers of Jesus riding in the ground. And now her fear is met with some confusion as she's uncertain of what's happening. She then hears the insults begin to pile on all the more and the crowd cries out, what do you have to say? Crying to Jesus to do something. He stands up, he looks at her again. She knows this has gotta be it and he lets out the words, let the sinless one throw the stone. This woman knows who he is. He's claimed to be the Messiah to the woman at the well. This is the sinless one. This is the one who says he's the son of God. And after he says, it's my right to punish sin, he begins to bend over again. The woman knows that this is her time. The stones are coming. And in her fear, she cowers again, only to find silence. She doesn't hear a rock. She doesn't feel a rock. She sees Jesus bend over and ride in the ground again. She doesn't know what to do. She's cowering there, crying, uncertain of what will happen. And then she hears it. The rock's falling, but not on her to the ground, one thud after another. And she doesn't just hear the rocks falling to the ground, she actually can hear the footsteps in the dirt walking away. And what she hears leaving is interrupted by silence as it's just her and Jesus standing there, 
shivering, cowering. She hears the Lord rise. His knees pops as he stands up. He looks at her in the eyes. She's unwilling to look, still in her fear and her shame. Eventually, she works up the gumption and she looks at Jesus in the eyes. And can you imagine what she would see? For a second, think about that. What does this exposed and guilty woman see in the eyes of Christ as her gaze meets his? And do this with me. What do you see Jesus looking at you as? Like, put yourself in this woman's shoes just for a second. If you were drugged into the presence of Jesus, exposed and guilty, everything that you've ever done is laid out before him and you raise your eyes to meet his, what's the way that you see Jesus looking at you? Is it as an angry father, as a disappointed boss, as a cruel friend? Because the way that you see Jesus' eyes meeting yours probably tells you a whole lot about your relationship with him. Do you see him as angry? As a just judge, or do you see him as a gracious father? Because as this woman raised her eyes, she saw what she heard. She heard words of kindness, and she saw and experienced an act of grace, a face of grace. She saw and she heard words of forgiveness, and she experienced it too as Jesus forgave her in his words and his actions. And what man intended for evil as the the scribes and the Pharisees brought this lady seeking out guilt, God used for good to teach her and to teach us that confession leads to vindication, not to condemnation. When it comes to Jesus, when you confess, you find new life, not new death. But we're convinced of the opposite because we've been trained that way. When When you commit a crime and you go to the cops, you go to jail. When you tell your teacher you cheated on a test, you get a zero. When you tell your harsh father that you messed up, you get yelled at. We are convinced that confession leads to condemnation, but that's not the case with Jesus. That's not his character. That's not who he's consistent to be, and that's not his culture. With Jesus, the opposite is true. When we bring our guilt and lay it before him, when we bring the darkness into the light, when we take our sins and place it at his feet, We don't find punishment, we find grace and we find peace. Because the sins that we lay at the feet of Jesus, they don't stay there. They actually are shouldered by Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And the beauty of the gospel is that those sins don't just stay on Jesus' shoulders. They went to the grave with him and he stomped on that grave as he walked out of the tomb. And now the sins that we confess unto Jesus are separated as far from us as the east is from the west. This is the gospel. This is what we believe, that when you confess to Jesus, you find new life, that repentance leads to relationship, not to rejection. And it's exactly what 1 John says, that Jesus is just and faithful to forgive us our sins. He is the one who can judge, and yet he's the one who can forgive. He plays both roles. It's the beauty of who he is. It's the the beauty of the gospel. It's what we cling to as followers of him. So what do we do with that? We become people who confess. I'll be the first to admit, this woman, she didn't confess. She got drug into it. And yet despite the fact that she didn't bring her sins to Jesus, but her sins and she was brought to Jesus, she was still absolved, how much more so can we trust that the God of all love and all mercy will forgive us as we willingly bring our wrongdoings to his feet? I mean, look at David. David is known as a man after God's own heart, but if you've ever wondered why, it's not because of the way he lived his life. 
David did not have a righteous life. The, way he, the, the, the reason he's known as a man after God's own heart is because of the way that he would repent. Confession within Christianity, confession to Jesus is good because the God of Christianity, because Jesus is good. It's something we ought to run into, but we've got an interesting relationship with confession. And here, here's, this is a silly example, but it might make sense a little bit. When I was growing up, I, I remember myself sitting at our dining room table and my father would say to me, Caleb, you don't have to eat your green beans, you get to eat your green beans. And I hated that. And yet I say it to my children. But the more I ate my green beans, the more I actually liked them. My taste bud matured. I got, I got used to it. And now as I'm getting older, I actually appreciate the nutrients that they offer. I actually want to put good things into my body. And so what I used to hate, I now like and I appreciate. And the same is true when it comes to confession. You don't have to repent but we have a father who invites us into repentance. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. And the more we actually appreciate what it offers to us. Let me say it again very clearly. Confession leads to, con or to vindication, not to condemnation. It leads to new life. Confession is good because it's us running to the presence of Jesus, laying in front of him and letting him cleanse us offering our burdens that he might carry them. We get to be one with the God of the universe in right relationship, free of all our wrongdoings. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I imagine there's some of you out there too who are going, well, yeah, I get it. I wanna run to Jesus, but I just gotta clean myself up first. I gotta take care of a few things before he'll actually accept me. If that is you for a second, I'm gonna talk to you really straightforward. Look at what Jesus says to this woman. If you believe you gotta clean yourself up before you run to the living God, look at what the living God says. Neither do I condemn you. And then go and sin no more. Forgiveness comes first, then a call to righteousness. Don't busy yourself with cleaning yourself. Only Jesus can do that. It's his rightful spot. It's his rightful duty. It's his privilege. He loves you. Let him clean you. And then he doesn't abandon you and say, go figure it out on your own. No, he walks hand in hand with you as you're sanctified by him, not just for his pleasure, but so that you might experience life to the fullest. The best life is a life free from sin. Let him cleanse you and then walk with him for all eternity, knowing that he created you to walk with him. You see, I don't, I don't struggle to trust this story. The footnotes don't scare me. I don't trust where it's, or struggle to trust where it's at. What I actually struggle to trust is that this is who Jesus is that he's got a character of forgiveness, that he would be consistent to forgive a guy like me over and over. And I struggle to believe that this is the culture, the kingdom of heaven, that you here would actually forgive me if I came to you with my wrongdoings. But you know what helps me trust that this is who Jesus is and experience these attributes of him? Confession. Because as I confess, I, I experience the character of God. And as I do it time and time again, I see the consistency of our Lord. And as I confess unto Jesus and unto my wife and my, my community, I see the culture of the kingdom. And then I'm able to offer that culture which I appreciate to other people. Confession leads to trust because confession leads to relationship. Confession does not lead to condemnation. With Jesus, it always leads to vindication. 
That's my prayer, that we would be people who confess unto the living God, knowing that he forgives. Fellowship, would you worship with us this morning? As the communion elements are passed, we ask that you hold them and we'll take them together at the end of the service. Table for 
on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup, he poured it, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Before you take and drink, would you actually offer a prayer unto Jesus, a prayer of confession? Just for a moment, pray and ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins and your unrighteousness. Would you take and drink? And after he poured the cup, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. You just prayed and asked Jesus for forgiveness. Would you now pray and thank him for that forgiveness? Take a moment and rejoice in the fact that you serve a God who does forgive. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of Jesus. Hey, fellowship, I, I think that true repentance is always followed by true rejoicing. Because when we truly repent unto Jesus, we recognize that he truly forgives us and that leads into new life, not rejection, but renewal. And so my hope is that you wouldn't walk out of here somber-minded considering all the wrongs that you've done, that you wouldn't walk out idolicizing all the bad that has come from you, but that you would walk out worshiping and rejoicing the beauty of a savior who renews, reconciles, and walks with us. If you need prayer, we would love to meet you. The Wilsons are in the prayer room, but fellowship, walk out of here rejoicing. Give someone a hug and say good morning. We love you. We'll see you next week.